Well, good morning, church. If you have your copy of God's Word, let's open up to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we're going to look at verses 17 through 20. As you're finding your place there, that's such a great line uh, towards the end of that song. Um, you know, my part of my spiritual formation and, and spiritual journey uh, really didn't change until uh, my latter years of seminary, not so much because of seminary, uh, although there were some great things that happened there, but when I began to understand uh, that the gospel really had very little to do with how closely and tightly I was holding on to the Lord, but rather coming to the understanding that it was really all about Him holding on to me. And it changed my whole way of thinking and processing and working and laboring, that it wasn't about my striving and my efforts, but it was about the fact that God eternally was holding on to me, that no matter what storms come, the waves that toss into and from the night, the night that, that stays in front, like it's about the Lord's grip, on us, and he is sovereign, he is in control, he is all powerful, and he does not let his children go, and he doesn't forsake them. Such a powerful truth to be reminded of uh, in that song, and I love uh, that, that song so much. Well, this morning, we are uh, going to jump into the deep end. I was tempted last week just to skip over this, uh, honestly, because it's a lot easier to preach about anger and lust and divorce and oaths and retaliation and loving your enemies uh, than it is to teach about the law. One, it can be extremely boring, but in the words of D.A. Carson, he says that Matthew 5, 17 through 20 are the, one of the most difficult texts in all of the Bible to explain and to understand, primarily because there is so much Old Testament wives that comes and be, is brought in. Into. And so we have to have an understanding of what the role of the Old Testament, the law in particular, the words of the prophets, and understanding whether or not that still has application for us today. And I'm going to make the contention that many of it deeply still does and should still resonate with us. There's a phrase that's being thrown out around evangelicalism, and you're seeing it with a lot of former like celebrity pastors and religious people. And they'll say things like, I'm in the process of deconstructing my faith. We see this right now going on with uh, Josh Harris, who wrote I Kissed Dating Goodbye all those years ago, and now he is at the place, former pastor, he has just walked away and says he no longer identifies uh, with being called a Christian or even being with Christians. And so this phrase deconstruction, it, it means a lot of different things, and people go through a process in their own deconstruction. And no one's journey is, is really the same, but when I was in college, I had a dear friend of mine that called me up, wanted to talk one day, and they said, hey, I'm just wrestling through some things, can we, we visit? And so we began to visit, and she began to tell me how she was struggling with whether or not the Old Testament had any implication for her life today or was relevant in any such way. And, and I was just a business major studying finance. I, don't, I was like, I don't know. Go ask one of the religion guys. Uh, I still think it seems to be pretty relevant. Paul tells us elsewhere that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and correcting and rebuking so that we can be built up. We finished our lunch. Several months later, we got back together, and I said, well, where are you at? How you doing? And she said, well, I've come to the place where I've where I'm at this position in my life, that I think the Old Testament has zero relevance for my life, and I'm going to be a New Testament Christian, only study the New Testament, because of all those laws that existed in the Old, not one of them is applicable for me today. 
And I watched her enter into this journey over the next five to six years where once she sort of gave that up and began to focus primarily and only on grace and, and seeking to walk in that grace, then she began to uh, begin her evolution, if you will, of, uh, of walking down her own path and inevitably lead, led her to a place where she deconstructed entirely and walked away from the faith. Now, there's an argument to be made in in another conversation for another day. Was she really of the faith that she could walk away from the faith? And and let's put that aside for just a moment. But but when her journey, and, and my contention, is that she failed at some point to reconcile the law with the gospel. And understanding how the Old Testament still applies today in, in every which way and, and, and through a paradigm that I want to suggest to us today that I think is biblical and I think is the way that Jesus and the Apostle Paul would understand the law and what Jesus says in Matthew five seventeen, where he says, I didn't come to abolish it, to ignore it and throw it away, but rather I came as the fulfillment of the law. Now, in the Old Testament, there are approximately 613 laws that a devout Jewish follower of of God would have had to follow. And scholars divide these 613 laws up into several categories, three primary, uh, one being civil law. And so you'll read about this in Deuteronomy and Leviticus where uh, there becomes a dispute between land or property or animals. And so God gave these laws in order for them to to live at peace with one another and to be in harmony with one another. And so all of those laws are, are judicial or civil laws to help settle disputes between brothers on a very horizontal level. And then you'll see other laws that exist throughout the Old Testament that are just called the ceremonial laws. And and what these are, these are very specific instructions on how the priest was to administer the the sacrifice and what the people had to do to wash themselves and to cleanse themselves and what they could do in the temple and outside the temple and approaching it. And, And these were the ceremonial laws. This was God's instruction for how they were to treat God himself. And then the third category is what we just tend to know is what's known as the moral law. How do I live rightly with my brothers and and my vertical relationship with God? And and these are best embodied and illustrated in the Ten Commandments. Now, my, my friend that deconstructed from the faith, she would make the contention that every single one of those laws, moral and ceremonial and civil, had absolutely no bearing on her life as a New Testament follower in Christ. And we can rightfully say so that of all of those Old Testament laws, some were quite peculiar and some were quite silly. They were very specific instructions at times. In other words, if you were going to eat a baby goat, I don't know in what circumstance that was appropriate, but in Levitical law, you were forbidden to boil a baby goat in the milk of the mama goat. Apparently, there were some people who liked baby goats and liked to put them in the mama goat's milk, and they would cook them that way. And Levitical law would say, hey, don't do that. There are other laws that are just as peculiar. You couldn't eat certain kinds of fish and and what you ate mattered and and what you didn't eat. There was a a law in the book of Deuteronomy that said that you couldn't grab somebody below the belt. And so I guess when you were doing jujitsu and karate back in that day, you were forbidden from doing those such things. There's another law that simply just said that, hey, listen, if you're going to kill somebody and defend yourself, you can only do that at night. So if someone comes to your house in the middle of the day and tries to take your life, you're forbidden by this law to take their life unless it's at nighttime. 
One of the laws that I found perhaps the most peculiar in a post-COVID era was that the people of God were forbidden from eating a certain kind of animal, and that animal was a bat. Seems like we ought to bring that one back post-COVID. Seems very applicable, and rightly so, that it's a bad thing if you were trying to fry up and deep fry bats. That'll probably be at the State Fair of Texas at some point, uh, covered in powdered sugar and, uh, and deep fried batter. But you were forbidden from doing those things. And how is it that we can say that those things are silly and we don't abide by those, but yet the, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, are still binding? And the answer to that is really, really simple. Is because we're going to see in the next few weeks as we walk through the Sermon on the Mount, and we would see if we took time to do a series through the Ten Commandments, that every single one of the Ten Commandments and the moral law are affirmed by Jesus himself in the Scriptures and in the Gospels, and or the Apostle Paul speaks to them at some point. And so when Jesus says this, I didn't come to abolish the law, look in verse 17, he says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but rather I've come to fulfill them. John Stott says that that word fulfill there, it carries with it this idea of filling up what was lacking in something that God had given. And so in other words, what he says is not to ignore the moral law and the words of the prophets. They are still equally valid and true today. From Genesis all the way to Revelation, I came to fulfill it, to fulfill and fill them where they were lacking, that I'm the embodiment of that. Verse 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. One of the things that's interesting here in this moment that Hebrew scholars get it immediately is if you were ever to look at Hebrew words, you know that the consonants there are these defined letters, but the vowel points are these little dots and these obscure markings that almost look like hieroglyphics or, or code. And, and you can move one little dot or one little apostrophe that's up there and it can change the entire meaning of the word and, and the variance of it. And what Jesus is saying here in this moment is that I say to you until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, not a semicolon, not a diphthong, uh, not a yod, whatever it is in the Hebrew, he's saying those things will not pass until the law is accomplished and fulfilled. In other words, what he's saying is everything that I have written precisely in the way that I have written it, it matters. And it's valid to you today. And it has deep-rooted application. Verse 19 Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Whatever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's a couple of things that what we want to do today is to sort of put this understanding of law and prophets up against what the law's original purpose was to maybe relieve some of you and to, to demystify, if you will, the Old Testament and the role that the Old Testament would have in the life of the New Testament believer, which, by the way, um, I abhor that statement that I'm a New Testament Christian. 
Because it seeks to, in, in some ways, subtly, it undermines uh, what it is, all that God did prior to that. And listen to me, when you say that, the only reason you would say you're a New Testament Christian is if you fully understand the validity of the Old Testament and how everything in the Old Testament was ultimately leading to this place. You do not have the new without the old. And you can't ignore it and bypass it and skip it. You have to understand it. But one of the things the law does, all 613 of these laws, in the past and in the present and the future, the law keeps our sinful natures in check. It's like a net. It's a consequence that if I defy what it is that God wants, then the repercussions will be this. Failure to repent of sins and receive Christ, it causes not just death here physically because we all die, but it results in the consequence of that is death in eternal life and separation from God. We obey sometimes because we are fearful of the consequences. Why is this important? Because there are many times in your life and in my life that I won't desire to do the right thing. In fact, what it is that I'm going to want to do is I'm going to want to do the wrong thing. And so what the law is meant to do is it's meant to say, hey, listen, when I don't desire to do the right thing and I want to desire what's in my own heart or my own flesh or my own will, I need to be reminded of the consequence of that action. And it becomes a check and a net to keep me from falling off the path of, of destruction or rather from jumping off the cliff. You guys may or may not know a name, but perhaps you've seen this image of a guy named Luke Akins, who back in 2016, he was a part of the, the Red Bull uh, team or franchise or whatever it is, extreme game you know, mode uh, to, the, to the 10th degree. And Luke, back in 2016, decided to set a world record by jumping out on purpose a moving plane at 25,000 feet in the air without a parachute. And he jumped. 25,000 feet, had to have oxygen uh, on his face and his mask. He was so high up in the air, and he jumped, free fall, all the way down to hit this, what looked like a tiny speck in the middle of this desert, and ended up being this large net that catches him as he falls into the earth. Now, that day, Luke jumped, and he knew that gravity was going to win out. He knew that he was going to fall all the way to the ground, even as he flew, if you will, and flew straight into that net. And that net was the check, and it was the reason why Luke survived that day. But it was a reminder of, of if that law and if that net had not caught him, Luke would have perished that day on TV for all the world to see. But the law, it keeps our sinful natures in check. It reminds us of those things. You know, when someone is released from prison and they're on probation, the state will put an ankle monitor on their, on their right or left ankle. Why? Because at that moment, they, they, they don't trust themselves, and they certainly don't trust that individual in that moment to do the right thing. And so the ankle monitor, it relies, and it's this check, if you will, it's this net, this safety net, saying, listen, you can't be out of your home at a certain time or we'll know, and you're going to have to check in with your probation officer to make sure that you're moving in the right direction. And we're going to sort of guide you, because we know, fresh out of prison, your best efforts and even uh, what you want to do may not always 
always lead you to do what you ought to do and your desires become all-consuming and we don't want you to enter into that bad behavior and that pattern of your life. And so we're going to put an ankle monitor on you and we're going to watch you for, for at least a little while, maybe a couple of years, maybe a couple of months, and you're going to check in with a, a male or female probation officer. You're going to tell them what's going, how's it going. And all the while, what they're doing is this what's just called behavioral modification but it's meant to be there to remind them of the consequences so the law keeps our sinful natures in check but the law also was intended to shine light on how sinful we actually are you see God gives 613 commands to the Israelites the God-fearing Jews for the purpose so that they would recognize their inability to actually live up to the standard of the 613 laws in other words God gave the law and he he knew that there is no way that they would meet every single one. And what it does is it shines light on how sinful we actually are and driving us to see not our need for a friend or community or even a church, but rather a need for our Savior in our life to redeem us from when we fall short and to relieve us of the burden and the yoke that often exists within that. Yesterday, uh, my family and I, our oldest daughter, I was in a volleyball tournament, and we were up early in the morning, about 6 o'clock a.m., and uh, half of us returned in the afternoon, the other half returned uh, about, about 6 o'clock, so it was a full, full day, but when I got home, I went into my bedroom, and uh, I was doing laundry and trying to get ready and situated and start to think through uh, today, and I, I noticed that it felt a little hot uh, in, my, in my room, and so at first I thought, well, maybe I've got COVID, here it comes, you know, nothing happened, so I go and check my, my thermostat in my, in my room, and I'm starting to second guess everything, and I know that when I was driving home, it was about 95 degrees, heat index was probably 100. 112. I don't know. We live in Texas. It's always hot and sweaty around here. But I go and look at my thermostat, and it says it's 80 degrees in my room. I was like, man, it's hot. And then I turn my, make sure my thermostat's on, and it's set to about 76. And, but I notice it's been on all day, but it never got below 80 degrees in my room. And see, what was going on in that moment is my, my thermostat was still working. It was telling me what my temperature was, but the thermostat is not talking to my AC unit. And I got a problem. And what the thermostat did is it identified the fact that my room was a little hot. And it helped me realize that, yeah, I'm a little sweaty right now. And and thank goodness it's not me and I'm not sick and, and my room is hot. And what the thermostat did, it identified the sickness that was there, that the temperature is off, but it was powerless to change the temperature in the room. It just identified what was wrong. And this is how the law works. The law would shine light and it would identify the problem and say, listen, you're broken. God's standard is perfection. You're not living up to that standard. And it shines light on who you actually are. The great reformer, theologian, pastor, Martin Luther. He says this about the law. He says, the law made me one of the greatest reformers, one of the greatest pastors, theologians, made me, quote, hate God. It made me hate him. Luther goes on to say, the reason why it made me hate God is because the law showed me what I shall be, I should be. But then it made me realize that I wasn't. So it showed me the standard. 
And the more I learned about it, the more I realized that I, that I didn't live up to the standard, that, that, that I could never live up to the standard, that it was impossible for me to live up to the standard. The law will shine light on how sinful and how broken we actually are, all 613 of them that we fail to live up to God's perfect standard. Number three is this, that when you study the law, the law will reveal God's character and it will show you how to please God. I'm indebted uh, to a, a, another dead theologian that passed away, a guy by the name of R.C. Sproul. When I was in high school, or excuse me, college, uh, I came across his series on the holiness of God. And if you've never listened to it on tape or read it, it's, it's fantastic. But when you learn about the holiness of God, the, one of the ways in which you do that is you learn about his standard that he sets oftentimes in the Old Testament. And the reason why God being so specific all the way around and giving these funny rules is because he was holy and he demanded that his people be holy. And so what R.C. did that was formative to me early on is he helped me understand that the law that God gave, that it was meant to reflect his character and, and who he was and how holy he was. And so the more I learn about what he put on top of people to do and, and to not do, it, it, would, it would reveal his, his holiness and his character to me and, and, and it would show me what it is and how it is that I could please God, not in of my own self, but because of God and because of who he is. And I become overwhelmed with that. So I study his holiness and the law and it leads me back to this place of, of grace and indebtedness and, and gratitude to him. R.C. says this, and I quote, he says, the law drives us to grace, but grace drives us back to the law. And what that means is, is that when I understand who God is and who I'm not, when I understand his righteous and perfect standard of perfection and demanding that and realizing that I fall way short of that standard, it leads me to this place where I become overwhelmed with, with gratitude and, and, and how gracious God is, unmerited favor in my life and how merciful he is. And then when I understand that, it's out of that place and that rhythm in my life that I begin to walk in faithfulness towards the commands and what it is that he has told me. I don't work for those things so that I would have favor with God, but it's this understanding that I have favor with him and therefore I want to be obedient out of a place of gratitude. And the law was meant to drive us to this rhythm in our lives where we are desperate for his grace and for him to be merciful to us and kind and, and to bring us back. But when Jesus says, look again with me at verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. To fill up what is lacking. Why? Here's the good news of the gospel. All the way up until this point, the people of God were, in, in one sense, yoked down by all these rules and regulations, this religion. This is how they live. Because God was ultimately pointing to the fact that someday he was going to send a redeemer 
to reconcile them to him and that, that one day the law was not going to become irrelevant, but rather Jesus was going to become the perfect embodiment of the law to fill up what was lacking so that now my standard is Jesus and not a list of 613 rules and regulations. That he is the one that I am meant to be obedient to and to walk towards and to walk alongside. The law, listen to me, it cannot do what only the gospel of Jesus is able to do. The law has no power to change hearts. It has no ability to make dead men alive again. Only the gospel of Jesus can bring something that is dead and make it living again. When the law can't change the heart, only the gospel can. And here's where I think we, we miss it more often than not, is that we, we tend to focus too much, perhaps, I think, on what we would just call behavioral modification. So when I was in college, we had a, um, we had a men's, we had a guy's accountability group. And I think at the time, uh, Spielberg and Hanks had just released a band of brothers. And so we did what every other church did. We ripped off Hollywood TV. And we're like, we're the band of brothers, right? And we would come and we'd gather together. And it was fun in the beginning, and, and we would talk and have meaningful discussions. And, and, uh, but then what began to happen, because we were young and naive, young and dumb, didn't know what we were doing, had no guidance. We just wanted to be accountable before the Lord and accountable before brothers. But, but what began to happen in this accountability group is that we began to focus all of our time on all of the sin that we had been committing. And it was just like 45 minutes to an hour of just confession after confession after confession after confession. No hope, no change. And we come back the next week and guys are still confessing the same things over and over and over again. Another hour, you know, week later, same thing over and over and over and over again. We would try to change. We would, we would try to seek about, well, how do I modify my behavior? But, but here's what began to happen. What I began to realize years down the road, but felt that something just wasn't quite right here in that moment, is that we were focusing so much on our behavior being changed that we left out the gospel of Jesus altogether. And we were leaning into just law and, and religion and rules. Now listen to me. There are times where we need to change our behavior, that we need to flee from sin, and we need to run from sin. But just as passionately as you run from sin, you need to run even more passionately and quicker towards your Savior. Because the hope is not just in fleeing things and bad things all the time. The hope comes when we are running towards the one who can change the desires and the feelings. Who can mold the heart and make the dead alive again. The gospel changes your heart so that your desire to do God's law tells you what you should do. It's the gospel that changes us. It's the person of, of Jesus that, that redeems us. And he is who we give our, our focus to because there is no program. There is no tidbit of device, pastoral counseling or wisdom. The, the best pastoral counseling and wisdom is one that listens and hears and identifies and one another's with you. But at some point, it points you to the saving, sufficient work of Jesus on the cross. His death, 
his burial, his resurrection, the abundant life that he offers now as you walk faithfully with him. No law, no man, no person, no thing, no program, no college, no seminary, no Sunday school class, no church can ever offer you what only Jesus can through him. And the way the church comes alongside that and the small group comes alongside that and the community group comes alongside that is they spend most of their time making much of him. Sure, there's horizontal application and we're gonna get very uh, application driven in the, in the weeks ahead as we walk through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and we deal with very practical issues. It's why we're, we're doing this. But, but Jesus wraps up the end. You know, remember last week, he's talking about being light of the world, salt and light. He comes out of the Beatitudes saying, you're blessed, blessed are the meek, blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. And, and he says, the reason why all those things are true is because I didn't come to do away with everything that you know. In fact, everything you understand today is built off of that. I just came to make it complete. I came to offer forgiveness of sin so you don't have to sacrifice a goat on, on Sunday mornings to atone or to bring an offering to atone for your sins this week because Jesus would say, I'm sufficient for those things. This past week, I was, it was Monday or Tuesday, and I was driving home. And I get down to 1187, and I'm getting close to home, but, but on 1187, close to where I live, there's a... Uh, there's a police station down there, and they're always patrolling on that road. So I typically know where they're, where they're sitting, uh, where they're watching. And on this particular afternoon, I get on the late 87, and I start driving a little bit. And it's about a four or five-mile drive down that road. And I look in my rearview mirror of my truck, and I see there's a police officer behind me. And he wasn't just behind me. He was, like, up on me. Like, he was, you know, putting in my license. You could see him, like, pointing things. And I was like, oh, man, I done got got. Like, it's over. Uh, I started to get pretty kind of fearful. Like, uh, what have I done? Uh, you know, did I, did I, did I, was I speeding? I, looked, I wasn't speeding. Did I, did I not stop all the way at the stop sign? And, and I stopped all the way. I used my blinker. Was I tailgating? Uh, is there a taillight out? And I began to, like, run through this whole thing in my head over and over and over again. And for about three and a half miles... And I'm not one to, to ever be uh, suspect of police officers. I love police officers. I'm thankful for police officers. But in this moment, whoever that scumbag was behind me, he was a deplorable individual because I was innocent. And for three miles, I mean, he is, at the minimum, he's breaking the law and tailgating me. And we get to this intersection, and I thought, okay, he's fixing to get me. Because he pulled up. I couldn't even see his bumper. He was, he was on me so close. I sit there at that light, and I said, he's going to pull me over when I get through this red light so we don't block the intersection. I'm going, I'm going down. It's over. Light turns green. I go straight. He turns to the right. I was so relieved in that moment. I was relieved. Um, I was a little bit angry, frustrated. That he, that he did that. I don't think he had any intention of doing that. He probably wasn't even looking at me and was thinking about some other criminal he was about to go bust, you know, somewhere else. I don't know. 
I thought that for a second, how prideful of me to think that he was after me when he might have been doing something else or being distracted, but, but he left. And, and, and I walked away from that going, isn't that the reminder of, of the law there in that moment, like perfectly illustrated? I'm walking up to preach the, the law and Jesus being the fulfillment of the law and it being like a, a safety net of consequences, right? And then here that cop was to, to make sure at the very least he just reminded me to go three miles below the speed limit on that road from now on or to at least put a backup camera and a camera on my front dash to monitor everything that I'm doing, to make sure that I'm living right and doing what I'm supposed to be. This morning, my question to you as one of your pastors is this, are you doing what you're supposed to be doing? Are you living in in such a way, not out of legalism, not in religion, but are you living in such a way that that you're not only fleeing and and running from sin, but you're also, more importantly, running towards your Savior and resting in Him, leaning into His goodness and His kindness, knowing that He's merciful, that He's exposed you. Do you know that this morning there may be pretenders here at church? There's always pretenders at church, but there is no such a thing as a pretender before God. He knows where every single one of us are. He knows what we said, done, thought. He knows what we did this past weekend, weeks ago, and and he knows, and he he shines that light. And so my question this morning to to plead with us as as his people are, Or are we letting the the hearts and the the law of the gospel, if you will, are we letting it shine light into our hearts so that we would not only flee sin, but run to our Savior? Because friend, there's much more joy and life running to our Savior rather than living in our sin. And so this morning, it's a simple ask. Would you repent of of that sin and would you run to Jesus and would you ask him for forgiveness of of your sins, believe in his name, call upon his name and receive him by by faith today. But if you know him, the the onus is still to, to repent and to believe and to say, God, help me run after you this week in my own life, in my marriage, in my work, in my studies in my frat, in my sorority, wherever it is that God has you, would you run to him this morning? Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you that, Lord, first and foremost, that you you give and show us grace in your good name, unmerited favor for those of us that stand or sit in this moment underneath that grace, that we can find rest and we can find comfort and you are a refuge to us. So we pray, God, that we would work out of that identity of being forgiven of much to go forgive others, to be a people of great gratitude, to, to, to be a people that walk in a, in a blessed rhythm, meek, hungry for righteousness. You'd help us be salt and light. Help us be a lamp in, in very dark places. So Father, this week our prayer is that we would just be found faithful Father, we know that because you are a faithful God, you, you impart to us your faithfulness. And so we pray, God, that we would be faithful in our circles this week. Would you help us do that? We ask and we pray these things in Christ's name and God's people said.
as our team leads us in a time of response, um, this altar is open for you to pray, come down, cry out before the Lord. I told the first service this, I'll tell you what I, what I told them. Uh, we work all week, we pray, we study, we practice, we run through things, all for this time right here that God's, we would see God move. Maybe would he move in this place? We still want to see people that are far from God come to know him. We want to see his church built up and, and the knowledge that is good and right before him to be discipled according to the word. And we want to pray that God continue to show himself. We've got 12, 13 or so folks in our new members class today that we'll be introducing to you in a couple of weeks. God's been faithful there, been faithful in your, in your giving. You've been so kind and generous uh, to our church. And we've been using that in, in ways to help reach our city. I'm seeing some of you that, that God brought back. You've been out with COVID, not just for 10 days, but like four weeks. Some of you that were hospitalized, God has brought back. Some of you that are here today, God has saved and redeemed, made dead man alive again. You were dead in your sins. God made you alive in Christ. 